Well, I do invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 12, page 188 in your pew Bible. And let us stand together, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled over Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth, eastward and in the direction of Beth-Jeshemoth, to the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah, at all Bashan, to the boundary of the Geshurites and the, the Maacathites, and over half of Gilead, to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, one, the king of Jarmuth, one, the king of Lachish, one, the king of Eglon, one, the king of Gezer, one, the king of Debir, one, the king of Gader, one, the king of Hormah, one, the king of Arad, one, the king of Libna, one, the king of Adullam, one, the king of Makeda, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, the king of Aphek, one, the king of Lasharon, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shimron Meron, one, the king of Akshaph, one, the king of Taanach, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kedesh, one, the king of Jokneam in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Naphoth Dor, one, the king of Goyim in Galilee, one, the king of Tirzah, one, in all 31 kings. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. You may be seated. Well, I told you I was going to skip this chapter, and uh, I lied to you. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's just simply a list of kings that Moses uh, and Joshua defeated and their territories. But upon further study, I realized that this is a perfect passage for a Sunday when we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And you say, how in the world is that the case? How does this apply to the Lord's Supper? Well, it's not so much about the details of the passage 
you know, all these kings and their territories, but rather the function of the passage within the book of Joshua. Why, why, is, this, why is this here? Why is this chapter in the book of, of Joshua? Well, it's, it's here as a, a summer, summary, a recount or a reminder of what the Lord had done for them up to this point. You know, this is the end of the second section of Joshua. The first section was them entering the land, crossing the Jordan and entering the land. And then the last several chapters have been all about the conquest of the land. And you see there at the end of chapter 11, it says the land had rest from war. Chapter 13 and forward is going to be them divvying out the land to the various tribes. So we're here at the end of this section. So this is kind of a stopping point, and it is a a recounting of what the Lord has accomplished for his people. And what they're doing is they're making a memorial, uh, a reminder. They're remembering what the Lord had done for them. They're remembering God's mercy, his goodness, and his faithfulness to them. This is them writing it down. And, you know, when you read it out loud like we just did, and you just read those kings one after the other, you know, 31 kings in a row, you just see that's a, that's a lot of work the Lord has done for them. And they're recounting it all and remembering it and rejoicing in it. Now today, as we gather at the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? What did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way as they remembered God's mercy, his goodness and faithfulness, we are coming to the Lord's table today to do the same thing. Uh, an even fuller and greater victory we have as we come to the Lord's table and remember through Christ the mercy, the goodness, and the faithfulness the Lord has shown to us through our Savior and all that he did on our behalf. Well, let's look at these three things, remembering God's mercy, his goodness, secondly, and then faithfulness. And we'll also think about that in reference to Jesus and what he's done for us. Well, first of all, we want to remember God's mercy today. We should remember God's mercy today. If you notice, in the first six verses, the writer brings up these victories over two kings, Sion and Og, uh, that, that happened under Moses before they entered the Promised Land. And the land from those victories, that was allotted to the three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And this was on the other side of the Jordan River from the Promised Land. They conquered this before they came and crossed the Jordan. Uh, It was on the east side of the Jordan River. So why was this included here? The book of Joshua is not about that conquest. The book of Joshua is about them crossing the Jordan and conquering the land on the west side of the Jordan. Well, this was to preserve their unity. You know, they, back in Numbers 32, after the Israelites defeated Sion and Og and took their territories, the people of Reuben and Gad particularly said, you know, this is, this is great land. They had, if you read back in, in Numbers, they had a bunch of livestock, and this was wonderful grazing land and perfect for, for them. And they went to Moses and said, can we have this land? Uh, and Moses discouraged them. He said, you know, you, you're going to settle here and leave the, your brothers, the other tribes, in the lurch while they're, they're going to have to go fight. 
And so the agreement was made that, yes, eventually Moses said, yes, you can have this land, but you have to agree to come and fight into the promised land and help your brothers out. And so they readily agreed to that. They left their little ones and their wives back in the towns uh, on that side of the Jordan, and the fighting men accompanied the rest of Israel to help with the conquest of the promised land. So they already had a little bit of friction there about the Jordan River and being separated from one another. Well, if you go to chapter 22, after everything's been divvied up in the land, uh, and, and Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh go home from the conquest, and they go back after helping their brothers out, they build an altar, a replica of the altar on their side of the river. And the people on the other side of the river said, what are they doing over there? They're, they're, they're doing an abomination. And so they take up arms and they're crossing the river to go fight with Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And it tells us there in Joshua 22, 21, when they, they, they see that the, the rest of Israel is coming after them, then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one God the Lord, the mighty one God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So see, there was already this tension between the people on one side of the Jordan and the other. And the, Reuben, the, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh folk were worried about that. They were worried about being separated from Israel and rejected. So there's this temptation between the two sides of the Jordan River to treat one, uh, one of the sides as second-class citizens. And the writer of Joshua is saying, look, just like you have just conquered the promised land and you've defeated Jericho and Ai and all the rest of the 31 kings, uh, the same thing is true on the other side of the Jordan. You know, Moses and you and all of Israel conquered Sion and Og and their territories. God gave you the victory and God gave the land to these people, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So the Lord gave you both victory. The Lord showed mercy to both of you. The Lord has blessed you all in the same way, the same manner. So they're reminding them of that. They're writing this down so that everybody knows where the land came from. It came from the Lord. It came from God being merciful to them. Now let's pull this into our own day and time. We need to be aware and be beware of treating other people, other Christians, as second-class citizens. Uh, we need to remember that we, every one of us, is the object of God's mercy. If we are saved, it's not because of anything we've done. 
It's not because we're more clever than everybody else. It's not because you're so smart and that you could understand the gospel and somebody else can't. It's because God showed mercy on you. Never forget that. We need to be humble and recognize that everything that we received is a gift from God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. And it doesn't matter what uh, tongue, tribe, or nation you're from. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic level you're from. If anyone is saved, it's because God showed mercy to them in Christ. And that get, should give us cause to rejoice in God's mercy. Yes, I've received God's mercy. I, I'm an object of God's mercy. And that humbles us. The Corinthians were very divisive in their church. They had factions and you know, people uh, saying, I'm for this guy and I'm, you're for that guy. And you know, they were fighting with one another. And Paul writes to them these words in 1 Corinthians 4. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. He was very careful to guard against divisiveness in the church. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what is he saying? Don't act like, like you, you're better than everybody else. Don't act like you didn't receive something from the Lord. You received it from the Lord. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Uh, you, you didn't get it because you were somehow better than anybody else. You received grace. You received mercy just like everybody else. So that's good for us to remember especially as we come to the table today. What do we say? You know, I don't say it every Sunday, but every, every time we have the Lord's Supper, but I say this is not a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. All who profess faith in Christ and who are a good standing in a Bible-believing church are welcome to the Lord's table. We're communing with one another on the same level. We're all recipients of the mercy that Christ showed when he laid down his life and he died for every one of us who's a sinner. We're all sinners and all need of God's mercy. And today is a great day to remember that as we come to the table, that we are completely dependent upon God's mercy. Now, second of all, this is also here for us to remember God's goodness, God's goodness. This chapter is a, is a thanksgiving chapter. Each victory given by the Lord is remembered here. Uh, a long list. You know, sometimes you've, you've probably sung the song, Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. If you read the lyrics to that whole hymn, he talks about, you know, if you're discouraged, if you're, uh, if you're uh, under pressure and stress, and, and if you if you're, uh, feel like you're just losing, remember what the Lord has done for you. Count them out one by one. Be specific. You know, sometimes we just pray... Oh, Lord, we just thank you for all your blessings. You know, it just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And we get used to saying very general things like that. But there's a, there's a need for us to stop and, and give specific thanks for each blessing that the Lord has given us. Don't just say, well, Lord, thank you for all your blessings. List off one or two when you're praying. Remember what God has done for you. And that's what they're doing here. And it's funny because... Uh, if you look at the Psalms, uh, Og, old King Og and King Sion, 
come up numerous times in the Psalms. They are remembered on occasion. Psalm 136 is one of those. And it's a thanksgiving psalm where the psalmist is remembering specific blessings from the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. And then he starts the list. To him alone who does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. And he goes on and on. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but in verse 17, to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, he's just soaking himself and remembering all the blessings and all that the Lord has done for him. And it's a great example for us. Well, when we come to the table, uh, you know, we're giving thanksgiving, right? Some churches in their tradition call the, the communion or the Lord's table, they call it the Eucharist. And the word Eucharist is the Greek word for thanksgiving. In some translations of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, he, he talks about the cup of blessing. That's what the ESV says. In other translations, it says the cup of thanksgiving. The cup of thanksgiving. So Jesus gave thanks as he broke the bread and gave us the cup. And we, as we remember God's mercy to us, we're also giving thanks to the Lord and worshiping him as we participate in the Lord's Supper. We're remembering Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And we're saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this very specific and the most important blessing that the world has ever seen. So giving thanks, remembering God's goodness to you. And not just at the table, but in all of life. Stopping and, and giving thanks, saying thanks. Because, you know, a posture of thanksgiving is, is re realizing that you have received a gift. You know, when we, you know, a lot of people, when they sit down for Thanksgiving in November, they'll go around the table and everybody lists off something they're, they're thankful for. It's a good practice, but we should do that every day. And especially every Sunday as we come to church to remember what God has done for us specifically, particularly. So remember God's goodness. And today, let's remember God's goodness to us as we recount and, and, and reflect upon the fact that the Son of God gave himself a sacrifice for the sins that we often just flippantly commit without thought. God is good all the time. Now, finally, remember God's faithfulness. John Calvin, in his uh, comments on this particular passage, said this, <clears throat> talking about this list of kings. But though each of these now summarily mentioned, the kings, was previously given more in detail in the previous chapters, there is very good reason for here placing before our eyes, as it were, a living picture of the goodness of God, proving that there had been a complete ratification and performance of the covenant made with Abraham, as given in the words, unto your seed will I give this land. God promised in Genesis 12, repeated it Genesis 13, Genesis 15. He repeated that promise to 
to uh, Isaac and Jacob uh, that I will give you this land. And that chapter 12 is just the stamp of paid in full. God has delivered what he promised. Every inch of it. Calvin calls it a living image of the grace of God. The, this list of kings. See, God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We don't talk a lot about covenants. You know, I say this every time we talk about covenant theology uh, or, or, or covenants in the Bible. We don't, you know, the only covenants you have are like when you live in a neighborhood, a fancy neighborhood, and, you know, people have signed covenants that they won't paint their house, uh, you know, hot pink or whatever. Or we talk about the covenant of marriage, which is a good illustration for us. Uh, it's a relationship, a bond, some vows, uh, a relationship that's not just uh, buddy-buddy or friendship, but there is a bond, like a marriage, a, a bond, a promise, a vow connected to it. And that's the kind of commitment that God makes with his people and his people should make in return to him. A covenant relationship. Marriage, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, is a picture of the covenant between Christ and the church. The bond, the vows. And that's what the Lord has done here. He has made a promise and he has fulfilled his promise. And, and that's what we have here at the Lord's table. If you think of all the promises of God, as Paul says, they are yes and amen in Christ. Every promise. And if you just look back at the covenants that were made, you know, there, there were certain times in history where God made covenants with certain people. Remember with Noah, uh, God made a covenant when he got off the boat. Covenant with creation, really, that he would n never destroy the earth in, in that way again. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't destroy the earth, but preserve it. Instead of bringing judgment and wiping us off the face of the mat, he has promised to preserve the earth and human beings to save them. We wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for that covenant. And Christ wouldn't be able to come if... There was no earth and no people. So Christ fulfills the Noahic covenant. The covenant with Abraham, the land. Uh, he, he's promised land and descendants. By faith, we are children of Abraham. We've been grafted in to the people of Abraham. And we sing the song, or we used to, maybe when we were children. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. We're talking about being part of the people of God, Abraham, the promise made to him. Land, descendants, and he promised to, to be a blessing to the nations. And here we are. We are a testimony to that promise. We are part of the nations that have been brought in and grafted in to the body of Christ. So the promise of Abraham is fulfilled by Christ. Moses, the giving of the law. You know, some people say, oh, that's... Uh, is that a blessing <laughs> that God would tell us, you know, what to do and not to do? And, you know, it really condemns us. But yes, it shows us God's law is we know what God wants. And that's a special blessing that God has revealed himself to us in his word. And for us to stop and say, well, it does condemn us. But that's the purpose of the law. It shows us our sin so that we will run to Christ. It's our tutor, Paul says in Galatians, to lead us to Christ. So the law was given to show us, to show us our sin, to show us Christ and God's holiness. So that's a blessing. And Christ fulfilled the law for us. He was perfect at it. And as we are united to him by faith, his perfect 
record is credited to us, his perfect righteousness. And that's how we are justified. And then David, of course, David was promised, the covenant made with David was that his line would go on forever. And that's, of course, Jesus is of the line of David. And uh, he is our king and our savior. And then finally, the new covenant was promised by the prophets. I will write my law upon your heart. And that's fulfilled by the Holy Spirit being in us. And Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we are to receive that forgiveness. So all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So as we come to the table today, remember God's faithfulness. God's faithful to his promises always. And don't be like the first generation that left Egypt. We talked about them last week. They got to the very edge of the promised land and then said, no, God is not faithful. He's brought us out here to kill us. These giants in the land are going to destroy our children. See, we don't believe that God is going to be faithful to the promise he gave to Abraham. It baffles my mind how they could do that after all that they had seen the Red Sea and the plagues and the fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day and the manna and the quail and the water from the rock and all those miraculous things that they saw through their wanderings, yet their hearts were hardened against the Lord. Today, let us remember that God is always faithful. He always keeps his promises. Don't say all of a sudden, I don't think God's going to pull through for me. He always does. It may not be exactly like we want it to be, but God is always faithful to his promises. God is always going to keep his covenant. And Jesus showed that by going to the ultimate ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life. The Son of God, the perfect Son of God, dying for us. That's amazing. And, And it is... Christ's covenant. He's bringing us into a a, a covenant relationship where even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's what it says in 2 Timothy Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. The Lord cannot be anything but faithful. Always. So I want you to remember those three things today, especially as we come to the Lord's table. Remember God's mercy to you, that you're you're receiving a gift from the Lord. Uh, Remember God's goodness to you. He's going to make you holy. Uh, He's he's got a plan for your life, and he's going to bring it all to fruition. It may not be while you're on this earth, but it'll get there. We'll all be glorified one day if we are trusting in Christ. And remember God's faithfulness, especially when you're tempted to doubt God or wonder, where is God? Or why, Lord, like the psalmist sometimes cried out. Get to that point at the end of the psalm where it says, yet, you know, I know that the Lord is faithful. He's good and he's merciful. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy, goodness, and faithfulness to us. Lord, we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve your goodness. And we are faithless often. And we pray for your forgiveness and help. And we thank you 
that you do extend mercy to us for sinners such as we are. You are good to us in spite of ourselves. You are faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness. So, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of these things and our faith would be bolstered up and strengthened that we might love you better and love others better and serve you better and bring glory and honor to your name and and to have a relationship with you and walk with you and know you and know that you love us and desire to be our God and to have us, sinners that we are, as your people. So, Lord, pray for all of us to be strengthened in our faith, and I pray for anyone who does not have faith that you would give them faith today. Grant them that mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.